On this week's episode of Physio Foundations, I'm going to be talking about how you can take advantage of the power of a well-thought-out explanation in your clinical studies or in your clinical practice. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Physio Foundations. This is Luke Periton from Monash University Physiotherapy and from Periton.Physio. And on this week's episode, I'm going to talk about providing explanations to people. So specifically providing explanations to people as a healthcare practitioner and why this matters for your clinical practice. So this is very much a foundational episode. In future episodes, I'm going to be bringing on clinicians and educators and other experts in communication, and we'll expand and we'll elaborate on the starting point that we've made here today. But you've got to start somewhere, so we're going to start here with this foundational content. So as a profession, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about and debating and researching various interventions, such as the effectiveness of exercise and other physical interventions. And that's very important. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But one of the most important interventions that we provide is education and providing an explanation to somebody is a really important part of education. So I think it's really important to spend some time on this. If you're not explaining things clearly to somebody else, and if you're not connecting with the person that you're explaining things to, and it becomes a bit of a mini lecture, that's going to affect the quality of the education that you're providing. So we need to spend some time reflecting and thinking about these foundational building blocks that make up uh, patient education, which is one of the most important interventions that we provide. We spend a lot of time gaining new knowledge and skills as professionals, and everybody does within their jobs and within their working life and within their life in general. But simply knowing something doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to explain it to somebody else or teach it effectively to somebody else. And that's because teaching itself is a skill that we need to develop over time. And this includes in your role as a health practitioner. So let's think more broadly, not going into into clinical practice or a clinical environment at the moment. Just think about the last time when you were giving a, what you thought was a clear explanation to somebody else or an overview of a concept and you're briefing someone on something. It could have been this morning with a family member, but shortly afterwards, it became clear to you that the person didn't really understand your explanation nearly as well as you thought they were going to. Um, And if you're being honest with yourself, have a think about this. The last time you explained something to somebody, You'd be doing it all the time whenever you interact with people, right? If you're being honest with yourself, um, this miscommunication, this problem with the expectation of your explanation and the evaluation of how it actually went, um, this happens all the time. And it's actually only through the process of reflection and being aware of this interaction and evaluating the effectiveness of your explanation that you're even aware of it and that you even notice that this problem's occurring. And it may not matter sometimes. Um, You might be able to re-explain something. They might need to hear it from somebody else or make the mistake and come back again. Sometimes it is really important and it does really matter because you may be the health professional that is able to provide somebody with a solution 
a lifestyle modification or get them to engage in an exercise program or um, some other intervention that changes their life. So it, it does matter. And let's spend some time thinking about the foundational building blocks of your explanations. So as a health professional or a health professional student, I think it's actually really important to zoom out first and broaden your view on your interaction with other people. So outside of your patient interactions. So think broadly and reflect on the effectiveness of the explanations you're providing and what makes a good explanation, what resonates with other people. And we're going to go into those details in a minute in this episode. But just as an overview, uh, you really do need to avoid, as a health professional this is, avoid the trap of feeling like you know things and you're the gatekeeper of this knowledge that you've been taught or that you've acquired over time. And your job is now to educate people and get them doing things for you. And um, you're important because you're, you know, above them in some way. Uh, it, you're, it doesn't make sense. When you say it out loud, it even sounds quite awkward for me to be saying this. As a health professional, that's not your job. It's the opposite of that. Your job as a health professional is to listen. And your job then is to listen, assess, understand other people's perspectives and problems, and then help them find a solution that works for them. Not, not a cookie cutter solution, right? And any intervention that you provide to a person is going to be individualized. It's going to be layered on top of that person's existing perspectives and in the context of their existing knowledge and skills and life circumstances. So you can't explain or demonstrate something effectively to another person without getting to know them, without understanding their perspectives and their pre-existing knowledge and skills. And that way you can meet them at their level and you can target your explanations to the things they really need to know, the parts of the puzzle that aren't clicking into place for them. So this is where your listening skills are really the foundation of your patient education or your education of anybody. So for, with all that in mind, in this episode, I'm going to give you four of my tips for what they're worth for further developing your explanation skills in a clinical setting, as well as some examples of clinical interactions that depend really heavily on a well-planned and a well-delivered explanation. And the advice I'm giving you here in this episode is the, the same advice that we give to our physiotherapy students. Um, it's advice that we use ourselves. I would use myself and colleagues that I've worked with would be using every day ourselves in education and in a clinical um, setting. If you listen to episodes two and three of this podcast with Pete Maliaris, you would have heard Pete talking about similar stuff. So in those episodes, Pete talked about the importance of being critical in your clinical practice and the importance of measuring things accurately and using reliable outcome measures and looking more broadly. Then he expanded on that and said, you know, to look more broadly at the person and beyond impairments and the things you can measure. And he talked about using education and exercise and activity modification um, to address the underlying cause of a person's problems, in this case with tendinopathy. Um, so if you haven't heard those episodes, they're really worth listening to an expert talk about patient communication 
in such a specific targeted way and see how it's been effective for Pete as an expert in tendinopathy. Um, but the point of this is what I want you to think about is that you actually, you can't actually take action on any of Pete's advice that he gives you in those episodes, you know, to focus on education, you know, activity modification. If you don't understand the individual person who you're talking to, and to do that, you need solid communication skills. And specifically, you need to be able to explain what you're thinking really clearly and then evaluate their understanding and go back and forward in order to try to change their activity, for example, or change their lifestyle. How are you going to convince somebody to change their lifestyle and modify exercises and do things differently or start exercise or activity? make major lifestyle modifications that they need to do if you can't explain the concepts to the person in terms that that person understands and how you're going to find the terms that that person understands without having really good listening skills and evaluating their understanding of your explanations. Very hard to do. And this is why I'm going to this concept first or this episode first before we go into more specific episodes about providing education and explanation for specific clinical conditions. In the case of Pete's patients as an expert in tendinopathy, he can't just do a mini lecture on tendon physiology and then drop the mic and job done, go home and expect everyone to connect the dots. It is a in very individual process of, of talking to people and providing that education. And the one of the fundamental building blocks of the education is how you go about explaining things effectively. So with all that in mind, let's get more specific. What do I actually mean by explanation in a clinical context? So here I'm specifically talking about when you as a student or as a clinician, take the time to thoughtfully and deliberately explain to a person your perspectives. It could be your perspectives and what you've assessed or your diagnosis, your understanding of what a patient or a person's just told you. It could be any explanation throughout the assessment. You could be explaining your problem list or your treatment plan and getting their perspectives on the treatment plan and or goals that come from that. It could be your reassessment. So you're explaining what you found, what you think's changed, what you think that means. So deliberate communication of important information to another person. It's when you have the intention of providing education or helping someone develop a skill or acquire new knowledge. It's a deliberate. But the key words I said before were take your time. So an effective explanation is it occurs when a clinician or a person thoughtfully, deliberately takes their time to work through with an individual the information that they need to know. Whenever I observe a really good clinician or a really good student um, working with a patient or a simulated patient, for example, one thing I've noticed is that the good explainers seem to take their time listening and explaining. And it does seem to be a very individualized process. So one observation I have is that people who are good at explaining things to other people, they appear to be taking their time and going more slowly. They seem to be getting lots done compared to someone who's rushing around and repeating themselves and who isn't sure of what they're saying um, and getting a bit out of order and getting a bit stuck in their own head. 
So it seems to be going slower, but a bit more effective. So they take their time. So rather than going over and over the same points again and almost trying to convince yourself of the validity of your explanations, um, one first tip, overarching tip, is to take your time with explanations. So leave space around words for patients to ask questions. The natural space there is a place where someone can ask a question if they have one, or they might just be able to think about and process what you're saying. They also ask follow-up questions really nicely. So follow-up questions come from listening. There's no other place they can come from. They ask follow-up questions to confirm that the person does indeed understand what they're saying, and they tend to be methodical and work through their explanation in, in an order. So it's come from a place of structure of thinking and practice, um, but there's also the opportunity to react and have a question and evaluate. So it's a two-way process. So when I see this, when I observe this as a physio or as an educator, what this tells me is that the person has put thought into what they want to communicate and how they want to explain what needs to be explained. So is it an explanation of an intervention they want to do? Are they explaining assessment findings? Uh, or are they explaining a motor skill about to teach crutches, to teach the use of gait aids, for example? First thing you might want to do is explain why it's important and you know, what will be involved before your demonstration. So there's a bit of a logical order there as well. So they're not missing things. And this helps with the structure of clear communication at any stage when you think, are you understanding? And you could ask if somebody is understanding or if they have any questions, you can stop there and work your way backwards if you've got a structure and you're methodical. So that's my first tip for developing your explanation skills. Take your time and have a bit of a structure underpinning it. So another observation of mine of good communicators is that what they do when they're explaining things is it's always personalized in what they're saying to the other person. So think about an unpersonalized explanation where you're giving facts to a person and you'd give the same fact as facts to, a, um, to any person from any different professional or any other background at all. You just give the facts to a person. Okay, that's a fact sheet. They could go to a website and get that. Someone who's good at explaining things always personalizes it to that person. And then in, in the process of doing that, they evaluate the understanding of that person. So to do that, you have to develop really good listening skills. And you have to actually think about what the people are telling you before you respond. So I'll give you an example. So the other day, Susanna and I, so Susanna Periton, the other half of Periton Physio, and mentioned Susanna on the previous episode. Um, many of you may know her. Susanna and I had a friend around at our house, and we got into a bit of a conversation um, with him about knee pain. And this happens to um, physios all the time and health professionals all the time. Um, you do need to know your boundaries and understand the limits of what you're going to provide in a non, um, you're not at work, um, but that's fine. I've had plenty of this over the years. So it's a general conversation and it led to us giving some general advice. And in years gone by, it did make me reflect on this. In years gone by, I probably would have felt the temptation to try to explain everything I knew about the knee, especially since I did my PhD on the knee and I have a special interest in the area. 
in this case, having been around the block a few times and seen how people respond to a deluge of information that they didn't ask for, um, in this case, it, and it was obvious that this approach wasn't going to work very well because he could tell by looking at our friend that he wasn't at that time, he wasn't ready to hear a lot of new information about his knee. And so he didn't say that, but you could tell by observing his responses, the small bits of information that we're providing. So sometimes you just need to read the room and figure out when a person's ready to hear information and your plan and what you think or how much of that they're ready for at this point in time, or whether they just want to be listened to. They might want to be just be listened to first before they listen to you. Um, they may need to build trust in you before they can integrate new information. They may have a whole bunch of existing knowledge on the topic and their knowledge might be quite good or it might be, it might be from less trustworthy so, um, sources. But if you start off with the, the mindset that most people want to be listened to before they take in new information, um, you can let that communication mature as you talk to people and that they can become more receptive to your explanations and your plans over time. So that's what Susanna and I did. We had a really nice chat. There wasn't too much, you should do this and here's a whole bunch of stuff I know happening. It was more just listening. And it was framed around his passion, which was weight training. And so this naturally led to questions from us about what he could do to modify things for his um, weight training, his squatting and lunges and every, all his other exercises and get back to his training again. Um, and he actually ended up changing a, a few things, his daily routine and warm up as a result of our chat and another consultation and his knee is improving. And this can happen when you listen to people, you can find out what they actually want to do and what they will do and what they're ready to hear. Now a disclaimer, see a qualified health professional for your own health problems and not your friends in the backyard. Yeah, but these things, these conversations do happen between friends. And the point of the story is that by listening to people and actually reading the room, you can develop a better understanding of that person and what's actually going on in their life. And ultimately you can provide better clinical care. So that's two pieces of advice there. My first two pieces of advice, number one, to take your time. And number two, to personalize your explanations to people by listening to them and thinking about what they're saying before you respond. And this helps you plan things. It helps you be prepared to adapt your explanation to suit different people. And there's no recipe. There's no brochures being handed out here. This is you as a person talking to another person. That's a really important thing to, an expectation to go into your clinical practice with. So my third tip is developing your, or broadening your definition of what explanation is in the clinic. This is something I touched on before. And it broaden, broaden your definition of what patient education is, develop a deeper appreciation of the power of a well thought out and delivered explanation. So the explanation you provide to people in a healthcare setting is, is really just one part of a two-way conversation that you're having with another person. The patient or the person will be explaining things to you and you'll be listening, asking questions and explaining things back to them. And this is all a two-way interaction. And if it isn't, 
you'll never understand each other. You'll never reach consensus and mutual understanding, and that will affect the quality of the care you can provide. So it's a two-way conversation. It's not a mini lecture from you about all the things you know. Um, and when I'm talking about education, explanation here. It's not just education of the patient. So it's not just a didactic mini lecture from you where you offload as much information as you can in a short amount of time and you hope that they'll remember it and it all miraculously um, sticks in their head and changes their knowledge and their behavior. We know that's not how behavior change works. So, I mean, sometimes this approach can be helpful for some people, so some people specifically come to you, notebook in hand, ready for information, seeking specific answers to questions. And you know they can remember a lot of what you say. They can take action on it and improve. And these people are rare because more often people come to a health professional with a combination of questions that they've thought of already. And they have other questions that they haven't thought of. And they have some pre-existing knowledge um, they have some fear, anxiety, insecurities. They're a human being. Okay? So it's not just a matter of bombarding them with all the information you know. They have some preconceived ideas of the things that they want you to explain to them and they want answers for, diagnosis, for example. And it's important for you to pick up on these things. What is it that they actually want? Why have they come to you? You can ask them that directly as well. And in this two-way conversation, you uncover these important questions from the person. And this pushes the conversation forward to a point where the person is more willing and ready to make the changes that they need to to get better. So explanation is always a part of this two-way conversation where you listen, you provide your contribution, you reassess the effect of your contribution and you modify your communication and your explanations to suit the person. Um, and back to uh, Pete's episodes, episodes two and three of this podcast, this ties in really nicely with what Pete was saying in the second part of our conversation. So that was be episode, episode three. And what he said was, you know, the worst thing a clinician can do or a health practitioner can do is to be too confident. A bit of a paradox there because you need to develop confidence, but being too confident can be a problem. Maybe more of a balance than a paradox. So don't be too confident. Pete went on to say that once you've critically evaluated what you're doing and you've chosen a path and you've got a plan and the patient and the person understands that plan and they're a, a part of a team, you're, you've um, agreed on goals and you're working towards this plan, then you need to be confident with that plan. ACL reconstruction and rehabilitation is a really good example of that. If I take a mask example I'm familiar with, it's a long process. Have a plan. There will be ups and downs and setbacks along that plan, and you need to stick to it. It takes a long time, and that's where confidence comes in, knowing that long-term we are on the right path rather than just generalized confidence. Uh, that doesn't have a good basis and be too confident. So can you see how your patient explanations and your confidence are related? So you need to try to be critical as a clinician and constantly evaluate the effectiveness of what you're doing and saying, and that includes what you're 
explaining, patient education. If you're too overconfident from the beginning, you'll just be painting over the cracks and your patient education becomes a lecture rather than a conversation. And if you're underconfident, the trust in you as a clinician can suffer as well. So to remedy this, consider your explanations that you give, these mini lectures, to become a two-way conversation. And it's much more fun. You connect, make real connections with people. Um, you build trust. Your confidence grows. And you don't have the pressure. As Brian Kim said, I'm going to self-cite here again, Brian Kim in an earlier episode of this podcast, he was talking about taking pressure off himself as a new grad physio and uh, not expecting himself to know all of his anatomy. Now, he's pretty good at anatomy, but being willing to pull out a textbook and look something up in front of somebody and say, look, here it is, and work through the problem with the person rather than being this gatekeeper of knowledge. That was a really nice point from Brian. So my fourth piece of advice for providing really good explanations or at least developing your awareness of the effectiveness of your explanations in the clinic is actually a bit different, a bit different from what you might be expecting to hear. I want you to consider the power dynamic between yourself and the other person you're providing care for. This does relate to my point before, from before about um, providing mini lectures and being the gatekeeper of knowledge. But I'm thinking a bit more broadly here. Consider when you're explaining things, a power dynamic, if it exists, between you and the person that you're providing care for. And consider that the patient or the person is going to be explaining things to you and you back to them. And the difference, though, is that there's nearly always a power dynamic that you need to be aware of. And when someone's explaining something to you, for example, in the initial interview, the power dynamics is going to affect the information that they give you. And you need to get the right information in order to do a really good assessment. So it's going to affect the follow-up questions that you give to them and they ask to you uh, in order for you to fully understand what they're talking about. So you, when you're explaining things to a patient or a person, how many follow-up questions are they asking you? Is it all you? Is it one way you're asking them questions? Uh, they're giving you answers. Is there space in that initial interview or follow-up interview for them to ask questions? So just things to think about. Potentially, if there isn't space and it's a bit more you leading it all, potentially there's a power dynamic there. And if you're aware of that and you're able to even up that power dynamic, potentially you can get more information from the person. So think about, are they getting a chance to ask questions? I mean, some people need to be actively encouraged to be part of the conversation and setting expectations that you are going to have a conversation and it should be two-way and you can ask questions. That's really important as well. Uh, and there's lots of different reasons why a power dynamic may exist. It could be personality. It can be cultural norms, people's expectations of what you'll be doing and saying and how the interaction will go. But in general, though, if you can think about whether you're giving the patient or the client or the person an equal opportunity to contribute to the conversation, 
then you'll be in a better position than if you're not thinking about the power dynamic. So think about this. You're in an initial interview with somebody anywhere in a clinical setting, hospital, outpatient, private practice, anywhere, edge of the sports field. And imagine doing an interview with them and you don't ask any follow-up questions and they don't ask you any questions. Uh, this is you reading from a questionnaire. You might as well be reading from a questionnaire and a computer could do your job. So now imagine the opposite. So now what I want you to imagine is a more even power dynamic, a more human to human conversation where you are asking automatic follow-up questions and you are allowing some space in the conversation for the person to ask you questions and just compare the difference between those two extremes. And we all normally find ourselves somewhere in the middle. So thinking about a one-way conversation with an expert, someone who's the gatekeeper of knowledge, who's up here on the power dynamic and trying to even up that power dynamic. So there's a balance, of course. It's really important to listen, sometimes to sit back and listen, and other times you need to follow up and probe and know your limits when you're probing with your questions, know when it's time to probe and when it's time to sit back. Um, it, what, however it goes, it does need to be a two-way conversation between you. And if you're not aware of a power dynamic, it can affect the balance of that two-way conversation. Good times. So lots of specific um, and general clinical communication chatter here. I want to segue now into some specific examples for you of explanations that you could provide in a consultation. This could be as a physio student or a clinician, any health practitioner, it doesn't matter. So a good place to start is at the beginning. Let's talk about the, the problem of consent. That's a, only a problem if you're not aware of it okay, and you don't get it. A very common problem I see amongst colleagues and students is the assumption that the patient has consented to being touched and taking off their clothes. And okay, so you, you, in a clinical situation, you may need to the patient to take off their shirt, for example, in order to see the shoulder and the shoulder blade or to assess their breathing or to assess their movement in some way. And that might be a very valid reason to do that. And you just need to explain that. And then once you've explained it, then get informed consent. And the way it's done is often a bit sloppy. And it's really important that it isn't sloppy because you have to get consent to put your hands on another person and to expose their parts to get them to take the shirt off so or, their, or any item of clothing. So if you haven't explained to the person why you need to touch them and why you need to remove their clothing, and if you haven't given them options for if they don't want to do this or ask them if that's okay, you're putting yourself at risk, but you're also going to affect the, the communication between you and the person. So instead of just telling someone just to take off an item of clothing, all right, whip off your shirt, lie down there, or um, take off your strides for me, and um, let's have a look at your knee. What you can say is you can bundle up an explanation and you consent in a package for them. So you can explain why it's important and then ask them. So you can say it would be helpful if you could take off your shirt so I can take a, 
so I can have a better look at your neck and your back and your shoulders and how they're moving. Is that okay? If you don't want to or you see hesitation, you can provide them with other options. And this saves you time because you're packaging up your explanation and your consent and you also the person understands why you're doing what you're doing, why you've asked them to do that. Consent for touching the patients, another bugbear of mine. You do have to get consent to touch another person. So instead of just touching people, oh, there you go, just start the physical examination and then convincing yourself or claiming that there's implied consent because they've come to you for treatment, which isn't the case. Um, you can, or not thinking about consent at all, or perhaps adding a, an awkward line in there, so do I have consent to touch you? or something prickly and weird like that, why not practice it? Why not have something that makes sense to both of you? So people know what they're consenting to. So a script can be helpful or something that you deliver naturally, not perhaps something you read out, something like to assess your shoulder properly. I'll also need to use my hands to feel for areas of pain. And I can also assess how you're moving. Is that okay? And that way the person actually understands what you're going to be assessing and they can give informed consent. Now, this is a very basic, foundational, fundamental um, discussion here about consent and explanation, but it's really, really important. And sometimes it's skipped over. So if you're an expert or you're a, um, a established clinician, you've been doing this for years, you've found your way onto this podcast, you're listening to this there's always something we can learn from everybody. And one thing that's really helped me with teaching is to think about the steps that are involved in things. So you may, if you find that you're a little bit, um, what's the word, Com perhaps complacent with the way you provide explanations and get consent, perhaps that's something you can tighten up. So by simply explaining what you're going to do to somebody or with somebody, or explaining the plan, or explaining what you're thinking, and then giving the person options, you automatically bring them into the assessment and you bring them into the, um, the process as a partner rather than the power dynamic again where you're this person with the knowledge, you're going to do stuff. And don't assume that they know what's coming up next. So the tip here is that you can't just assume that a patient's un that a patient or a person understands everything that you're doing or that you're going to do and why you're doing it and why it's important. It might be really clear to you in your head, but people do get into these situations in a clinical consultation where they feel quite awkward. And quite often it's just because you didn't explain what was coming up and why it's important. So explain exactly what you'd like to do, assess their understanding and and perform the assessment or the treatment, and that'll allow the person to relax and trust you. So what's another example um, of a time when you really need your explanation skills to be on point? Um, another example is explaining assessment findings or explaining the likely effects of a treatment. So it's important to explain the possible effects or the side effects and give warnings or the probability of a treatment helping or causing harm. And on the more complex side of things, you might need to provide a really detailed explanation or do this in stages you know, across a number of consultations uh, to explain you know, a long-term health problem to somebody. 
or ex- explaining and it, like providing education about pain and pain management is a good example of that. So these are all examples where as a clinician or a student clinician, practitioner, we're explaining things to a person, things that seem really obvious to you becomes a really fundamental skill and a part of what's going to make the difference between a person who trusts you and who you can help and the person who didn't know what was coming up next and was a little bit uncomfortable through the whole interaction. So clear explanations as if the person doesn't know what's coming up next because a lot of the time they don't, even if they're nodding along. Do they really understand your explanation? Is your, is your explanation clear to you? It should be. Is it clear to the other person? Can they explain back to you what you've just said? So these are all questions or tips and tricks that you can use to really reflect on the way you're providing explanations to another person and that transfer of information, that two-way conversation. So I've seen patients and I've seen patients in the hospitals and clinics and in education settings who are completely lost during a consultation with a clinician, and sometimes that's been with me. Okay, but I've observed this as a clinician and an educator. Um, quite often, they don't put their hand up and say, "Can we stop there? I'm not sure what's going on." Some people do. Quite often, you just see it on their face. So many of us get uncomfortable if we're, uh, you know, disappointing somebody um, or someone else, and this, this can lead to us nodding along and agreeing. Um, and not necessarily asking the follow-up questions we need to, which gets back to my earlier point about leaving some space in between your words and asking people if they understand, evaluating the effectiveness of your education as you go. And sometimes the clinician or the student has done everything right. They've provided all the information or take followed through all the steps that are necessary and what's required of them. But there's an important missing piece and that's the the evaluation it's the bomb 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 providing this you know knowledge or providing new information explaining things but not stopping to see if it's sinking in and that's really important so at this stage let me summarize some actionable actionable steps that you can take regardless of your level of expertise from student through to end stage clinician or end, end of career expert clinician these are points that may help all of us improve our explanation. So the first two tips were take your time and personalize information to people by listening to them and paying attention to what they say and um, trying to think about a two-way conversation rather than um, providing a recipe-based delivery of information. And then I talked about considering the effect of the power dynamic between you and your patients And the fact that you can't do an effective explanation if you can't evaluate whether your patient understands you and how the power dynamic can affect people's ability to ask honest questions and to put their hand up when they don't understand. That's important. And finally, considering specific points in your clinical interaction that would benefit from a bit of a routine or even a script And I was talking about consent and perhaps making sure you're getting consent, which is so important, by having that bit of a script that you can fall back on. So clearly explaining the intended 
assessment and the treatment so that you can actually gain informed consent and not just say that you did because the person actually understands what you were intending to do and, what you, and why it's important. So the other half of our explanation is demonstration or perhaps maybe it's the logical next point. You explain something and then let me demonstrate and then you're doing it together and perhaps demonstrating an a, a, a gate, use of a gate aid or an exercise, for example. So in a future episode, I'm going to dive into the power of demonstration in clinical practice. And I'll talk about the different contexts where you can use demonstration effectively or less effectively to improve you know, the delivery of interventions and your assessment in the clinic. And I'll also talk about common problems that I see in people's demonstrations in clinical practice, similar to this episode. We'll tie some concepts together. But before we go, if you've made it this far, congratulations to you. Um, if you've made it this far without pressing 1.5 speed, even more kudos to you. I really do appreciate you being a part of this podcast and education um, journey for me. We're up to episode, episode six or seven. It's still early days. If you want to connect with me, if you want to have a discussion with me about any of these concepts on the podcast, be brave, email me. You can find my email in the episode description. Um, if you're studying physiotherapy or another health profession degree and you find these concepts interesting, you can comment, obviously like and subscribe and all of those things, but you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter. It could be on social media, but feel free to email me as well. I'm not doing this to talk to myself in my studio at home or office at home. I'm doing this because I want to make genuine connections with people and share ideas and you know, progress the profession and move things forward. So connect. So please let me know what you think as well, what content you want me to cover. Um, send me an email, contact me in the various ways you can contact people. And that's it for now. So good luck. Good luck applying all of this in the clinic and within your training. And I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, this is Luke Periton, wishing you all the very best with your studying professional development, and lifelong learning.